Hey guys, before we get going, if you use trading apps, you got to check out eToro. It's a good way to gain exposure to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies while still getting your fix with the more traditional assets that you might know more about or just want more exposure to. eToro is also a social trading platform, which means it's kind of like social media and trading together. With copy trading, you can copy or just sort of adapt to the trading strategies of some of the best traders worldwide on the platform. This is not only going to give you exposure to how people are buying Bitcoin, but it's also going to show you what people are doing when they're expecting downturns or, you know, one of those bull runs. So head over to eToro.com to get started on your 2020 portfolio today. eToro, smart crypto trading made easy. going on? Dave Hollerith here. It has been a crazy time this last week. The coronavirus has sent some shockwaves into the stock market. Pretty much everything's been affected. But seeing how Bitcoin has reacted to this global health crisis in comparison to the stock market, which took a plunge, and gold, which also took a plunge, but then now is right back up. I'm back again this episode to ask one of our favorite questions in the Bitcoin Magazine newsroom. What is Bitcoin? Is it digital gold? Is it a savings technology, a safe haven asset, a mechanism for freedom, a risky investment, hacker money, or is it just completely uncorrelated? Today, I've got an interview with somebody who doesn't claim to have the answer, but he's sure as heck searching for it. Yassine Elmandra, he's the crypto analyst at ARK Invest. ARK's an investment firm that exclusively caters to research around disruptive innovation. They use collaborative research to look into things like streaming, autonomous vehicles, battery technology, and of course, Bitcoin. <laughs> Most people at ARC are also big time Tesla bulls. Yassine's job is to explain Bitcoin to institutional investors. So naturally, Yassine's analysis is typically very sharp and it's arguing a use case for Bitcoin to a group of people who might be highly skeptical. I'm not going to try and summarize Yassine's thesis, but, and if the long term Bitcoin proves to be a non-correlated asset, it becomes an essential tool for saving value in a catastrophe. Apologies. There's a little bit of static at the beginning of our conversation, so I'm just going to throw you guys right in. Yassine's answering my first question. Is Bitcoin an uncorrelated asset? Here it is. It's really this provable virtual commodity all the way to like, you know, it being really the purest form of money ever created, where you have the this bare asset that is holding money like properties, but in the digital world, um, to things like the auditability of supply and the predictability of monetary policy. Um, and so the, it's just this really interesting paradigm that we've entered, thanks to Bitcoin, um, and and providing kind of a mechanism by which uh, people can, institutions in particular, can understand that paradigm and then by understanding that paradigm, make an informed investment decision as to whether or not this is something that is worthy of investment um, is, is really what, what, what we're working on and what I think is lacking in, in, in the space and, and how to really get people over that, that hump. Yeah. Um, and like you're not, it doesn't sound like you're describing Bitcoin like money necessarily. Right. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So, so are you, th how, how are you thinking about it in terms of, I mean, you've said, you said asset, but yeah. So I'm also thinking like, 
you know, I, I've seen some interesting moves with people um, trying to build block stack, for example, people yeah. trying to build on top of Bitcoin, not just like as a layer two thing or a side chain, but an actual another blockchain. There are people basically saying that it's sort of the best protocol to build on right now. Like when we talk about Bitcoin, what all are you talking about? <laughs> sure. So I, I would I, I would still bucket all of this under kind of a monetary realm. Like this is this I think Bitcoin is, yes, first and foremost money. I'm I, I refer more so to the idea of like how an institution is going to view this as where you look at like the traditional the, the traditional definition of Bitcoin is, yes, as this alternative monetary system that exists outside the control of traditional financial systems and outside the control of, of top-down authority. And so people basically come to the conclusion that, okay, this is just digital gold, right? Uh, and to some degree, I, I, I do think that that is a, a, a strong kind of analogy, uh, but I, do, I still think it sells Bitcoin short, where... Oh you kind of have to look at Bitcoin as a, yes, monetary, but uh, a monetary institution, a monetary institution that provides specific assurances to wealth. And those assurances to wealth are, are then enabled by different properties that the network itself um, it, it, it works under. So one of those properties is monetary properties. So that is the kind of the traditional definition that we see of Bitcoin of like, Bitcoin is money. Bitcoin is divisible. It's fungible. It's portable. It has predictable monetary policies. Um, it, it, it's kind of has had like a fair issuance. Um, its monetary policy is not only predictable, but independent. So, wow, this is kind of this digital gold. Um, and this is kind of a really, there is a really interesting case to be made for Bitcoin to provide a mechanism to store and transfer value. Um, I, I consider that to be one of like three axes that I think is what makes Bitcoin unique. Um, I think the second is really, okay, if it is a novel monetary institution that provides strongest assurances to wealth, um, there are specific unique accounting benefits that Bitcoin provides um, to these assurances to wealth. So Bitcoin, for instance, being auditable by design is a core feature that I think most quote unquote institutional investors don't really understand or have a hard time grasping, right? Where it's this idea that you have these auditability guarantees that are more advanced than any traditional economic institution. And so you unlock this unmatched accounting transparency that you couldn't get in a digital gold. And you couldn't get in a gold or even a digital gold. Where if you think about gold, it's very, very costly to verify. You can only verify a single inglet. Uh, you can't verify the entire supply of gold. Um, and now you have like Bitcoin at, have where it's effectively a mechanism to, by running a full node, continuously audit the supply, reinforce the consistency and objectivity of the, this rule set, and not only verify the legitimacy of a single unit of supply, but at any time verify the legitimacy of the entire supply. Um, that is, I, I would say, far more powerful of a, of a mental model than just saying kind of digital gold. Yeah, yeah. And, and then I, I'll, I'll end with like the, this, this third property of, you know, um, kind of the, these security guarantees that Bitcoin provides, right? So yeah. we have these monetary properties, we have these accounting benefits, 
And then we also have these very unique security model features um, where you now, work, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Effectively proof of work, but, but not just proof of work. You kind of have uh, kind of specific cryptographic guarantees that unlock kind of new paradigms of even thinking about property rights. So I, I really like, you know, on one hand, the, this, this mental model of Bitcoin unlocking the possibility of the separation of money and state, which is what we often hear. Mm -hmm. uh, I think to, a, to, an, to an even larger degree, it, it's unlocking the possibility of the separation of property rights and state, where now you can have extremely strong guarantees to property, agnostic of any jurisdiction, and replaces the need to obtain that security from that jurisdiction with an extremely hyper-competitive marketplace. Um, and so it, that is something that, you know, it is not really considered, I would say, again, all this in the institutional lens, but I think is a very interesting point um, that needs to be better addressed. And, and so without necessarily needing to go into the mechanics of proof of work or needing to explain public key cryptography or d digital signatures, um, it, it's really kind of this concept of introducing uh, different, again, different modes of human organization. Furthering the value of these security uh, model features, you then start to see the case for Bitcoin being made, um, not just as this kind of uh, call option on a new monetary system, but also, let's say, as an asset that provides extremely strong resistance to arbitrary seizure. And so that's kind of an underexplored, I think, aspect of property rights, where the level of seizure resistant embedded um, into what would be the protected asset itself, right? Where you can have strong form of property rights if you own some land in, in a country that enforces uh, strong property rights, but that in, in and of itself is more seizable than something that you can uh, hypothetically just store in your head. Um, and so, you know, introducing these, these, uh, these new mental models and, and again, all under the premise uh, of defining Bitcoin as this kind of novel monetary institution mm -hmm. is, is, is where, where I think that uh, there's the kind of interesting ground to be made there. Yeah, real quick, though. To, so you're saying that you're saying that Bitcoin is sort of an example of unseizable new type of property? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really that's really interesting. I mean, it, can you dig into that a little bit more? Sure. If you take if you think about what makes Bitcoin unique, uh, I think what makes Bitcoin unique is is not in any single technological component, but rather in kind of the way that several technological components breathe life into um, the system that is Bitcoin. Like if you think about you know Satoshi's design choices in in the early days. I mean, there, there were very few things that he came up with himself, you know, everything from uh, proof of work uh, to kind of creating the, the concept of a, of a digital cash system. His predecessors effectively trailblazed um, and he was able to ingeniously um, kind of fit the components together to create th this system. Uh, and, and one of this is, is elliptic curve cryptography. So to your point about kind of the seizure resistant properties, um, if you think about what that means uh, and in the context of Bitcoin specifically, all it takes to own Bitcoin or to interact with Bitcoin is access to, to a private key, right? If you have mm -hmm. a private key, 
you have basically you've basically become a participant in the Bitcoin network. Uh, and so you're as a as a private key holder are basically able to subtly and covertly retain access to the wealth stored in Bitcoin, even under these jurisdictions with extremely weak enforcement of property rights, right? Where really holding your Bitcoin private keys means holding an asset that is fully matched by equity, that is no one else's liability, um, and that isn't, again, enforced by any sort of top-down control. And so you can store effectively your wealth in a passphrase held in your memory and that and theft of the private keys is really the only way to seize those assets there's no way for you to like you know there's no way for the government to go and freeze your bank accounts there's no way for the government to go and knock on your door and take the 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 bars under your bed uh like they would do with gold the you have basically uh it, it really reinvents what it means to be kind of an individual custodian and and opens a lot of doors for the kind of like hybrid models which which offer basically trade-offs between autonomy and resilience where you know if i really wanted to i could store billions of dollars of wealth in my head and it doesn't matter who it is i mean i I would say bitcoin is not torture resistant so yes someone could technically torture me into definitely you know in my mind yeah right into 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 divulging my private keys but it's impossible to indirectly and directly seize bitcoin indirectly via inflation right that i think is a form of seizure right where you see kind of the currency demonetization in india you see hyperinflation in 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 venezuela um, to some to some extent, it's a complete seizure of purchasing power. Um, inflation to many is kind of this 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 uh, this indirect seizure of wealth. Bitcoin is mathematically metered, tops out at 21 million, uh, and so purchasing power and your wealth cannot be indirectly seized. And then you combine that with the fact that it can be easily hidden and moved around, and it doesn't rely on the central party to maintain this list of ownership. Uh, and it can be transferred and uh, peer-to-peer. So the cost to verify and transfer ownership is extremely trivial. The cost to forge ownership is prohibitively, if not uh, impossible, um, to do. Yeah, on the, along these same lines, uh, do, you, do you think Bitcoin is an uncorrelated asset? I mean, I, I personally, I go back and forth on it all the time because you know, you're always like reading a drop or something like I got lately, uh, there's a big Bitcoin drop, I think one of the biggest in history. Um, And uh, it was just like a daily drop, I guess. I mean, but so a lot of people were saying like, it's because of uh, the Coronavirus. And that's definitely been taking place in the stock market uh, for the last couple of days, too. And, you know, I'm not gonna pretend to be a, a forecaster. But like, how much do you read into these kind of things? Because at the same time, gold is actually being uh, bought up a lot right now. Right. That, that's that's a, a very good question. I think a, a lot of people are asking yeah. this question. Yeah, I've received sure. a lot of inbound on, oh, you know, why isn't Bitcoin, if Bitcoin is digital gold, why isn't, uh, why isn't Bitcoin up like gold is during these times? Um, and, and I don't know if you saw the recent CNBC uh, on Squawk Box that Chamath uh, basically came out uh, and, and this exact question was, was, was being answered. I, so the, I, I would say that there are, few, 
there are a few questions that, that, that like you can then ask from is Bitcoin a, an uncorrelated asset? For one, in, in the context of the coronavirus, Bitcoin were to increase or like the way that gold has, then, then actually Bitcoin is not an uncorrelated asset. What that would suggest is Bitcoin is a negatively correlated asset to kind of short-term geopolitical risk and, and market volatility and uncertainty. Right. Um, and so the question becomes like, is Bitcoin an uncorrelated asset in, in what it represents? I would say certainly like there, I don't think that, you know, there is, there has been kind of any sort of quote unquote asset that presents the characteristics that Bitcoin presents, which is also why I like to kind of extend the definition of Bitcoin beyond just digital gold. The, the, the reason why I, I think that people are asking this, this question and, and is because in the past, there have been some interesting kind of, again, short-term indication that Bitcoin acts uh, in, a, in a negatively correlated fashion to kind of uh, geopolitical risk and uncertainty. So there was analysis done on kind of the uh, tensions in Iran. There's been some really interesting analysis done on the devaluation of the yuan against dollars and kind of the inflows to, to wealth. Um, looking at Bitcoin as this safe haven asset where kind of a flight to scarcity in this arms race to devalue currency across the world is becoming kind of increasingly attractive. But then at the same time, I think it's important for everyone to just take a step back and also uh, recognize that Bitcoin is still in its infancy stages. It's a, it's still most most activity is highly speculative. Um, most of the most of the trading done uh, m- most activity is like via kind of trading. Um, and so w- when you think when you combine kind of the easy access to kind of uh, exposure to Bitcoin um, and the relative ease at which uh, Bitcoin's price can change uh, day over day and the massive volatility that that presents. I wouldn't necessarily um, discount Bitcoin not being an uncorrelated asset, but we're, but the coronavirus is, I think, just indication that this is still very, very early. And uh, the, the sell-off is kind of a, a, a natural result of Kind of okay. Is Bitcoin really this this uh, non-correlated asset, or is it just very reflexive in its nature, where it's like you're almost like breathing the narrative into existence, yeah. and the one time where the narrative kind of breaks, you're like, oh wait, you know, it's game over. What what is this? I, it was supposed to go up when the coronavirus was, uh, uh, when everyone's mind is on the coronavirus. Um, so that's one side of things. The second side is that we we've done analysis um, on kind of the the like you know traditional correlation tables and there are some kind of interesting takeaways where bitcoin uh, provides kind of negative to neutral correlations to traditional asset classes mm-hmm. um, at the extremes right and so why is that interesting and why is that important i think that uh for one if, if you want to kind of use the narrative that bitcoin is a safe haven asset um then what you want to do is you you want to basically have this asset that that provides um, assurances and 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 tail risk mitigation during times of market stress, and so you want to basically uh, in times of the the greatest uncertainty in uh, traditional asset classes have Bitcoin uh, react differently, um, and so if you take uh, the maximum correlations 
in in the past since I, I think we did this analysis since 2013 uh, between Bitcoin and other cl asset classes. These asset classes being the S&P 500, uh, U.S. bonds, uh, gold, real estate, oil, and emerging market currencies. You you see that Bitcoin actually across every asset classes provides far greater um, negative to neutral correlations amongst each of those asset classes than what those asset classes provide uh, amongst each other. Um, so, and so, so in yeah. other words, it looks completely different from everything else. Correct. Correct. It looks complete. So if you look, if you take, for instance, kind of the S&P 500 and U.S. real estate, I, I have this chart in front of me right now. There's extremely high correlation at the maximum correlations uh, between uh, between the S&P 500 and U.S. and U.S. real estate, uh, correlation was actually uh, 0.88. When you take kind of the S&P 500 against Bitcoin, uh, you see a 0.35 correlation, so it's it's relatively neutral. Uh, and against U.S. real estate, you see a, a negative 0.39. So it's it's actually uh, there's a negative correlation. And so so there there's also that where it's like you can you can basically take a data set and and look at a at a case to be made over longer term holding periods and you look at kind of what the absolute the maximum absolute value of these correlations are as a way to kind of uh play the tail risk mitigation thesis mm -hmm. uh to to suggest why bitcoin is actually negative or neutrally correlated so you're not saying it's uncorrelated you're just saying saying that it's just freaking different. It's exactly. Yeah. So in an ideal world, what we would want for Bitcoin, and I, th I think we're very far from there, is that over the long term, just having a completely non-correlated asset. And I'm talking for an institution, you know, having just this completely non-correlated asset is in and of itself a strategic allocation. It's a portfolio diversifier. It presents different correlations against traditional asset classes and provides kind of this you know tail risk mitigation during times of market stress. I think over the long term and over long term, you know, 5, 10, a few decades, like we will see kind of this complete non-correlation, just just kind of arbitrary uh, price behavior and 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 reactions to long-term market sentiment compared to any other traditional asset class. And I think what people are then suggesting or what others want is like then over the short term actually being negatively correlated to market uncertainty uh, and, and kind of, again, geopolitical risk, where you kind of see this as a hedge against some sort of economic apocalypse. That's where kind of the digital gold thesis comes into play, mm -hmm. um, where it, it would be helpful to have some sort of insurance policy uh, against not only, you know, arbitrary asset seizure, like we had said, but also against kind of an economic apocalypse and so that uh, i don't think is necessarily a good thing over the long term no i think over no. the long term we we do want uh that non-correlation but then over the short term kind of having that flight to safety that indication that you know I, i'm scared of what the next few months to year might hold for my portfolio um seeing kind of that that negative correlation is, is i think a bitcoin's ideal state yeah, because it, I feel like if it if it were to be a safe haven long term, there there'd be a lot less opportunity for growth. Right, exactly, and then yeah. and not not only that, but then you have the kind of the the Bitcoin bugs that's that that criticize gold and saying that you know gold can never you know see appreciation potential 
because it needs like a complete economic apocalypse for it to succeed, right? Where it's like, you need to have disaster for gold to succeed. I don't think for bit, I don't think Bitcoin necessarily wants that. And I don't think, you know, Bitcoin is in a, Bitcoin doesn't need that either. Like there's so many new ways to think about what Bitcoin can provide that, that we definitely sell ourselves short when we tie ourselves too much to this whole digital gold. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, 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 the, I guess it's been an easy way to explain how it's, as I said, freaking different from other assets. Long story short, it sort of belittles the point. So I've read ARK has, has put out a report on uh, cash apps, growth and volume increase and in basically over 2019 as compared with Venmo's. And you did mention that this isn't really a, an area you cover. But given that, you know, Jack Dorsey has also announced that, you know, Square has sold over half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin in 2019. I'm really curious about exploring this connection here. (laughs) Um, Sure. Yeah. So like, can or would you be able to make or measure some kind of correlation between Cash App's growth and its Bitcoin adoption? So let me take a step back and kind of explain the the research that you were referring to, which yeah. was published by our fintech analyst Max uh, Friedrich, um, and he's covered Square extensively, and you know he's the kind of person that you'd want to talk to about this stuff much more than than myself. But I do have an angle on on kind of Cash App's positioning with Bitcoin. Uh-huh. Uh, but the, the 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 report that you were referring to was uh, around Cash App kind of having um, surpassed Venmo in in monthly active users. Uh, and the incredible growth that we've seen in, in Cash App uh, for, for a lot of reasons. I mean, uh, we, we, uh, Max had published a, a piece on kind of Square's uh, viral marketing strategies that, that have yeah. attracted users, everything from kind of Cash App Fridays to kind of being very, very involved in, in, in social media uh, to like kind of the, the design genius behind kind of the the cash app marketing team to to create this 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 really interesting relationship that um, cash app has had with with its users from what it's what it's been been able to do with the cash app specifically and kind of our digital wallet thesis more broadly um, is that it's doing things that traditional banks can't do um, uh, one of the things that we look at at arc um, I would say less so with Bitcoin and crypto, but more so with our other technology platforms, is that we think that uh, cost declines in particular are our primary force behind tech-enabled disruption. And, and so that also holds true for kind of consumer banking. So we, we like to base a lot of our research on, on this concept around uh, rights law, which is basically kind of a, a derivative of, of Moore's law, where, where Moore's law is a, is a function of time, more, uh, rights law is a function of production. So the question that we ask in kind of modeling cost declines is for every cumulative doubling of units produced, how much do costs decline? Um, when you kind of think about things like the electric vehicle market, uh, when you think about the, the cost to, to sequence a genome, um, these sorts of things present really interesting takeaways on how uh, cost declines are effectively a catalyst for exponential growth in, in usage. To a certain degree, we can also see that with the Cash App, where in digital wallets more broadly, where the customer acquisition costs are, are extremely critical in, in determining 
kind of the not only the profitability of checking accounts, but just the ability to to acquire the customer and then and then have that customer um, as as a part of as a part of the the, the Brado ecosystem at, at, at large. And so when you look at like the customer acquisition costs of digital wallets versus kind of traditional banking, we've estimated that that you know digital wallets customer acquisition costs are between you know ten and and thirty dollars and 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 the the customer acquisition cost of a traditional bank um, can be in the thousand dollar range, uh, and so that alone, that metric alone, it answers your question around why we've just seen a massive, uh, massive adoption in digital wallets and just consumer banking in general, uh, where customer acquisition costs are a fraction of what we see in traditional banks, and you combine that with the amount of data that these digital wallets are able to collect. Uh, compared to traditional banks, and this is kind of just a, a glaring uh, sign for disruption. Now, when you then combine that with Cash App in particular, and 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 compared to Venmo, and this is where we see kind of the crypto angle. The most interesting and telling sign for why the Cash App is onto something, um, when it comes to Bitcoin, is really just looking at Jack Dorsey's take on Bitcoin mm-hmm. more broadly. If you listen to Jack Dorsey uh, talk about Bitcoin. I think he's really the only uh, or one of the only CEOs of a public company that really understands Bitcoin, that understands Bitcoin, not as like, you know, this, this payment revolution, but really as this, this monetary uh, revolution. So um, everything from, you know, cash uh, squares decision to, to spin up square crypto as an independent subsidiary to, all the way to providing this really interesting and easy mechanism to buy and sell Bitcoin through the Cash App, all while knowing that like it really doesn't stop there. In the in the in the call yesterday, in the earnings call, uh, they they I mean Jack Dorsey basically said like this is only the beginning of our adventures in in Bitcoin. And and if you look at kind of Bitcoin sales in 2019, um, they they were able to 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 generate oh, I think over half a billion dollars in sales. And that is something that I think is only going to continue to increase as, as you know, Cash App and Square in particular begin educating their existing users who aren't familiar with Bitcoin on Bitcoin. Um, so a really interesting anecdote about that is I, I, I was at a, a, a Syracuse University talk um, where I was giving a talk about kind of the case for Bitcoin and, and why it's interesting. And at the end of the talk, uh, a lot of people asked, um, you know, so how do I buy Bitcoin? Uh, and and I asked them, I, I told, I asked them, like, do you have Cash App? And they're like, of course I have Cash App, but why why would you even ask that question? Um, and I'm like, well, because you can buy Bitcoin on the Cash App. And and they were so shocked that you could buy Bitcoin on the Cash App. And they opened the Cash App and and they realized, oh wait, yeah, there is a Bitcoin toggle, and now I can buy ten dollars worth of Bitcoin. And here's where I learn about Bitcoin. Uh, and so it's really like this interesting like dynamics that are being played out where I think Cash App is in a prime position uh, to become kind of the leading provider of Bitcoin to kind of retail, um, not only in terms of buying and selling, but also in terms of educating. And, and we've, we've really started to see that. I mean, the, the volumes that have been impressive, There's there's been some like moon juice memes going on about how much volume uh, uh, cash app absorbs through Bitcoin sales of, of newly minted Bitcoin 
Um, and it, I, th I think like the metric was like around 10% of newly minted Bitcoin is basically absorbed by the cash app, uh, cash app sales. Um, and so I, I think that rather than saying, you know, we're seeing growth in cash app uh, or growth in Bitcoin uh, grow cash app, I think growth in cash app will grow Bitcoin. Um, and, 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 and we've really started to see kind of where the cash app is uh, most prevalent. Uh, there's some really interesting analysis that Max did um, around looking at kind of Google trends for cash app by state. Yeah, and I overlaying saw that. that with kind of the uh, FDIC's unbanked rates by state. Uh, and you see that, yeah, most of the Google uh, trend activity uh, or, or Google search volume activity are in unbanked states, which are southern states. Uh, and so when you think about the case to be made for Bitcoin, about, you know, not necessarily needing to go through the traditional mechanism to, to bank your assets, uh, this becomes a, an all the more compelling uh, reason why, you know, Cash App is going to help fuel kind of Bitcoin's adoption. You're, the data is basically saying that most of Cash Apps, it's coming from the southeast. Yeah, it's, you're, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, so there's a, a like an uncanny overlap between the Cash App and the unbanked. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's because of the Bitcoin but it, it's yeah. definitely, it, it's, it's actually, they have a very cool uh, direct deposit feature um, that, that Square had introduced in 2018, um, where you, with the Cash App, you can basically uh, generate routing and account numbers, like if you were to have a normal checking account, that mm -hmm. you can then give to your employer uh, to facilitate a deposit onto your paycheck into the Cash App directly. So wow. this is like, this is a big deal if you think about it in terms of like, why this would be so useful for, for uh, uh, someone who's unbanked. I can now, you know, be an employee. I don't necessarily need to have a JP Morgan account. I can, you know, go on, on the cash app. I can, you know, go through pretty minimal uh, KYC. I can generate my own uh, routing and account numbers and I can literally receive direct deposit every week or every other week onto my cash app directly. Uh, I, can, I can then use the cash card uh, to, to purchase, uh, you know, like basically have a traditional debit card. The, obviously there are a bunch of boosts that cash app provides, you know, you know, 1% off of coffee or get your cash back. And at the same time, you know, I have this other valve, uh, 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 uh that is in Bitcoin where I, I can, you know, purchase Bitcoin. I can learn about Bitcoin. Uh, oh, and by the way, you know, Cash App just uh, released a new feature of, you know, investing in stocks. So now I can, you know, purchase fractional reser reserves of stocks. So if you think about kind of this, this concept of having a, an entire bank branch in your pocket and Cash App being at, at, at the forefront of that um, and, and, uh, and the POS system that they've, they've been able to create with their merchants and their SM, SMBs, um, this becomes like a, a really interesting angle uh, and and niche that 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 Square has has created that is evolving into something much bigger than what people expected. In in Squ Square Crypto's uh, open source grants to to Bitcoin developers is huge. Oh yes, and that's a whole uh, other discussion. Um, totally. And I, I'm curious to get your thoughts there as well. But when we saw that, uh, we were like, okay, this is definitely something that that people I think aren't realizing I've said traditional analysts don't really realize yeah uh, but that 
we just like just said that this is this is a this is a big deal for for one i think that being extremely intentional uh in creating an independent subsidiary that that, that is not looking into kind of squares uh short-term profit interests is like is very indicative of like how aligned square is with bitcoin's ultimate value and mission in 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 what it's providing so it's like you know we don't we we're, we're not looking for for in, in Square's commercial interests right now. We we ultimately think that Bitcoin success is Square's success, and so we're going to do everything we can to help Bitcoin succeed. And so you hire you know the Matt Corrales of the world, the Valentino Wallaces. You have Stephen Lee who's heading Square Crypto, and you come up with this really dynamic team of people who are exclusively focused on Bitcoin as an open source network more than they're focused on kind of square and and its commercial interests and and i think this is a very savvy move from jack uh and i think that it 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 answers two questions the first question around a lot of people have around the sustainability of bitcoin and maintaining it uh from like a tech and development perspective where it's like who's going to fund the developers well, it's going to be massive companies who have interests in Bitcoin success who are going to fund it. Um, and I think as a function of that, you know, Square has really put pressure on any, be it public or private company, who has an interest in Bitcoin, not to kind of commit resources to Bitcoin. Uh, and, and so there's some very, very interesting uh, dynamics that I think will play out as a result of the Square crypto. Speaking of... Uh large companies that have some sort of stake in crypto. Well, I really like your Satoshi uh, Bitcoin talk posts, um, but I was going to actually bring up the the Libra Hunger Games tweet thread you have going on. Can you sort of explain it? Sure. So that that tweet thread was like, I I created like a Hunger Games uh, Libra edition uh, where after there had been like 28 members who had committed to uh, being a part of the Libra Association, uh, we started to kind of see a, a massive drop uh, from uh, initial uh, members who had committed, uh, partially because they had committed without really knowing what that commitment entailed, uh, but also because we've seen kind of the regulatory backlash um, that that Libra has faced uh, since Facebook had announced that they would be creating this. Um, so I'll, I'll start with saying that I think Libra was actually a, a very interesting catalyst in putting crypto, however you'd like to define that, on the map. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Yeah, from a, from a regulatory standpoint in particular, right? Where you, you all of a sudden had a bunch of people who, uh, you know, uh, I, I would say like everything from congressional hearings to regulatory working groups, uh, who said, okay, we need to stop this because this could potentially threaten our monetary sovereignty. Uh, that was kind of really interesting to see play out, especially because uh, during, over the same time period, Bitcoin slowly kind of working in the, in, in the back. Uh, and so I, I think part of the backlash that we saw with Libra was because, you know, there was a neck to choke, right? You could point your finger at Facebook and say, we need to stop this. And we need to do everything that we can. And you combine that with the fact that Facebook isn't, you know, necessarily a crowd favorite. Yeah. Um, you know, you have kind of a recipe for disaster. So we saw 
you know, PayPal, MasterCard, eBay, Stripe, uh, all of them kind of just completely backed out. Uh, part of it was because they were receiving regulatory pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another part was, you know, wait, does this actually kind of compete with our own core competencies? And so, yeah, the thread is basically like, you know, over, over time, I, I add to the thread, I probably should, should add, I should have probably added today because there was a, a Tagomi, uh, kind of, uh, had, had announced that they would be joining the Libra association after Shopify joined. So that, that was a, a really interesting development. Um, they're a well-respected prime broker, uh, in the crypto space, but I, I, I would say that you know, the, this regulatory backlash uh, on Libra is, is not something that's surprising. It's a very easy target. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. I, 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 yeah, I, I think that, you know, you know, there are questions of whether or not they'll even launch. I think that they're probably going to launch. I think they're going to be a, a lot more restrictive, restricted in their ability to launch than, than, um, than they had initially anticipated. Um, you know, there are obviously talks about switching completely to fully uh, USD backed reserve. Uh, huh. I think that, you know, that could be something that they that they explore. And, and then obviously their ability to penetrate emerging markets is going to be very difficult because, you know, realistically, something like Libra could threaten uh, the, the, these these less developed uh, monetary regimes. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, you think about the, the ability to hold kind of a USD uh, backed coin on your phone in Venezuela, it, the, the, no one really cares that, you know, the, the, the data got leaked on one of their Facebook messages. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be some interesting dynamics that play out there as well. So uh, well, what are your thoughts on Libra? Pretty, pretty much everything you've said. I mean, I, I think uh, so in some ways to me as, as somebody who, you know, likes the idea of a de- decentralized uh, cryptocurrency as opposed to a cryptocurrency that's like completely controlled by, you know, one of the uh, most, most like uh, largest tech companies and, and probably the one of the lowest sentiment in the world, you know, and, mm. and I think, I think with all that into context, it's like not what, what you want. And it also takes a lot of um, what comes out of Bitcoin and even the broader cryptocurrency of like what people want the future to look like, what people want the internet and, and money to look like in the future. And it basically just says, uh, no, we're going to just keep things exactly how they are. And, mm-hmm. and, and so like that has nothing to do with, you know, how markets work and stuff. But I think that from a sentiment uh, perspective, that's kind of my interpretation of it. And then I also think that it's a huge, um, it's a huge red flag for um, like the U S government, just because Facebook is is in some ways uh, more powerful than the U S government at this point, I think, I mean, that might be, maybe that's an oversight, but at least as far as a network goes, I mean, they're the, they have more users than anyone else in the world, you know, as far as like, Definitely. I mean, it's like yeah. 2 billion users. Yeah. It's like this interesting shift in how, you know, nations or states or nation states are now, you know, not necessarily defined by borders. Like, you know, yeah. Facebook technically like the most powerful nation state in the world. Like the idea of privatized money is like cool and interesting, but like yeah. I, I way, way more would prefer to see decentralized money, uh, become and actually that was another question i was going to ask you is like how do you feel 
about people like the thesis. I've heard you talk about this too. Like the thesis that, uh, um, cryptocurrency is sort of like a winner take all scenario or currency is, is sort of a winner take all scenario. I think that's part of our like philosophy around value accrual. If you, if you really look at kind of the different investment philosophies in the crypto space, I, I would say that the most salient distinction is, you know, tech versus money, right? Um, where you kind of have your innovation maximalist, where they look at kind of these, these networks as, as being software first. And then you kind of have your monetary maximalist where um, you look at where you look at these networks as, as money first. And of course, this is from a, an investment lens. Um, if that's the case, you have like the kind of the software first mindset where the killer app is not money. The killer app is kind of this concept of multi-sided marketplaces and creating kind of you know, protocols, not platforms. And so the investor focus and, and the, the focus on networks is around um, a kind of the expressiveness, the composability, the upgradability of these quote unquote base layer protocols um, that have large feature feature sets. And so um, you think about what the network infrastructure priority there is, and it's around, it's around scalability and it's around feature sets. Then, then you have the, that money first mindset where the killer app is money. Like everyone says, what, what, what is Bitcoin's killer app? Bitcoin's killer app is Bitcoin or what is, you know, crypto networks killer app. It, it, it's right there in front of you. It's like Bitcoin is both the culmination of predecessors and the seed of this this breeding ground for experimentation yeah but at the, at the end of the day it, it go comes back to bitcoin yeah yeah that goes back to the um the thesis of like narrow waste yeah which is like another one that's being talked about is that it's, it's sort of i mean it sounds like you're leaning that in direction when you're sort of talking when you're looking at it in other ways like like a uh, property and, and things right, like that right definitely so I, I tend to take the view of like a money first mindset when it comes to kind of in, investing in value accrual and so this goes back to your question of uh, you think this is a winner takes most if not all mm -hmm. um and and the answer is i i do uh and and the reason being that at the end of the day, like these assets, however many features they have, I think to some degree just are, are, are forms of money uh, and they act as money and they're either money or they're kind of money, but obfuscated by technological jargon. Yeah. Uh, and you have, uh, you, you have other assets that like a, a, a work or like a discount token model or, or work model in which like those act more like securities where you can actually project um, some sort of cash flow. Um, but I, I would say that the non-productive assets are money. And if you think historically about how goods accrue a monetary premium uh, in the past and how kind of the, these, these goods become valuable, it's the largest driver is really uh, reservation demand or the willingness to hold. Um, and I think, you know, monies and what they represent it's like, it, it almost doesn't make sense to be contrarian when it comes to money. Like you want what everyone else is using. And so yeah. money is an extremely strong shelling point. Um, kind of the network effects are, are strong, like kind of indicator of the potential success um, that that money might have. And by success, I mean, you know, eventual value accrual. Um, and then beyond that, it's, it goes back to the discussion we had previously around Kind of can this money provide assurances to wealth 
And so when you think about, you know, how can money, is money going to be transferred and stored seamlessly? Is money going to be diluted arbitrarily? Is it going to be frozen or seized? It, it, can we audit the transactions? We think that ultimately Bitcoin in particular is going to be best equipped to fulfill these assurances. And as it does, we'll start to see kind of these, at least in the crypto space, this power law dynamic of kind of you have a, a large share that's attributed to the winner. And then you have kind of your two or three or four that are unique enough to Bitcoin but that, per, that provide these similar assurances to wealth as a form of money. Um, so I think that like the, the prey and spray model and the diversification strategy that we've seen in kind of traditional VC does not lend itself well to um, value accrual in the crypto space. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have, have, have made that mistake. And like, uh, I mean, I, I'm not speaking for you, but for me, like, I think hindsight is like, <laughs> right. is what I'm speaking to, you know, like I was around during 2017 and everybody, you know, went a little bit crazy back then. But I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to dig too much more into this is all, that's all really interesting, but I wanted to like go back down to earth on everything we're talking about <laughs> and just ask like how do you how do you actually manage your day uh, you, you've mentioned twitter's a huge part of it but yeah. you also yeah. write a lot it seems like too i tr i try to i mean there are a few things i mean my, my job is split between kind of research and and business development mm -hmm. um so a, a, a lot of it uh there I, I would say it's split evenly half and half but l l if we just focus on kind of the research side i i, I would say that you know twitter is definitely uh, kind of my initial screen. Uh, I'm I'm also a consumer of a lot of podcasts, so I, yeah. I enjoy uh, kind of listening to podcasts. Uh, everyone who's on Twitter also knows that you know there are uh, some some Telegram chats that you know have some high uh, signal to noise ratios that I, I try to, to to look at. Uh, but effectively, I think that the it's the beginning parts that are very very difficult to filter like there's so much noise out there totally. um, that that's kind of the initial kind of I would say vetting process that I, I would say took me a while as I was starting this job but once uh, kind of starting I, I, I think it, it becomes relatively easy to identify like something that's interesting versus something that's less interesting and then and I, I and then I would say like just you know collaborating on uh, on research with with other you know, brilliant minds in the space has, has furthered my thinking. I, I, I would say you know, collaboration, e even as much as like a simple phone call, uh, catching up with, uh, with someone on the West Coast of like, okay, what are your thoughts on this? How's the general market sentiment there? So you, yeah. you, you're, you, you're able to kind of gather you know, 10 to 15 people that you really trust, that you respect their, their ideas uh, uh, tremendously. And then, and then they become kind of that, uh, that disseminator of information. Your go-to um, for a certain something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that's like, you're defining like basically building a solid network. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that the, the, the beautiful thing is that it's not building a network in the traditional sense though, right? It's, and, and that goes back to kind of Twitter. And, and again, the idea of like an idea meritocracy where, you know, some of my closest, most well-respected 
individuals in the space are, are pseudonymous accounts that yeah. and some yeah. of them I've never met and some of them I've never spoken to. And so, and yet I can still uh, respect the ideas in, in and of themselves and separate the person from that idea. Uh, and, and you come out with some very, very interesting insight in this new world of like kind of sharing information. So uh, it's been, it's been awesome. I'm, I'm going to say in general, Twitter is way more helpful and insightful than the dark net, but it kind of has that same thing there where there's a, a sort of a different kind of like transparency. Yeah. It's like a, a free for all. And then you, it's on you to kind of attempt to filter out uh, Make the, the order from the noise. Yeah. And then, uh, and then from there it becomes like a very interesting way to uh, learn. Like I, I've learned so much on Twitter. I, I would say that, genuinely every every single sentence that i've said is 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 more of a synthesis of what others have said yeah and yeah. it is like an original idea and i think that like being able to synthesize oftentimes is even more powerful than figuring out uh, a new or original way of thinking about something yeah i mean you've also interviewed uh, on arcs fyi podcast which has had some incredible people like musk and uh charles graber but you you on that you've inter you've interviewed uh hasu antonopoulos probably had a lot of incredible conversations and been exposed to some pretty incredible thinkers is what i was thinking so like given all that like how do you sort of learn from these people you're you're you get a chance to interact with and and, and like filter your thinking from them yeah, I, I would say it, it goes back to Twitter, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I, actually, I met Hasu, obviously, on Twitter. And and he actually, the first time I, I had exposure to him was through a podcast in which the exact same question was asked. <laughs> um, and, Weird. <laughs> and, yeah, I know. I know. And, and, and I think that his answer is, is pretty much spot on with, with my approach. Um, where you basically, you know, gather a few people that you think are, are very interesting in, in their ways of thinking, not necessarily people that you agree with. Uh -huh. And you like almost religiously follow them and what they say on, on Twitter and in podcasts and in interviews. And in doing that, like over a few month period, you can pretty much develop like the perfect mental model for how they think about things, right? Uh, and so, you know, some, someone like uh, Andreas, he, he's less active on Twitter, but he, he, has, he does a lot of interviews. He has a lot of YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. He's written a few books. Um, you can effectively kind of take what, what his, his approach is to this entire space and, and understand, okay, this is like the Antonopoulos model. And then basically just pick what, what's interesting to you, things that you agree with, and then forget things that are less interesting to you. And then you move on to a new mental model of someone else. And so I know Hasu, for instance, his first mental model was uh, where he did this, where he basically turned on his notifications, uh, turned on the notifications for every reply, every retweet of, of Nick Sabo. And yeah. he was kind of the founder of Bitgold. And, and yeah, so he, but he's written a lot of uh, very interesting things around, uh, around Bitcoin. And so kind of the Zabo mental model is, is understood. And so now you, you go to a new mental model. So, it's like if you can kind of gather like, you know, 10 to 15 to 20 people who are well regarded uh, and really try to understand um, their every move, then from there, you can create this 
interesting, and I, I would even argue original synthesis of everything that's going on in the space. Well, so is there anyone in particular you follow outside of the crypto community? But yeah. I'm curious if there are like other people who are alive still, or maybe dead, who, who you also look to a lot for sort of a mental model to, to strive for. Obviously, I would say reading books is is helpful. I, I, I like someone someone that comes off the top of my uh, mind. Uh, and and actually, I, I wrote something um, around this. Is uh, is Thomas Sowell is like a, a very interesting economist and like social theorist that um, has a really interesting way of kind of looking at social and public policy. Mm-hmm. Um, that that in, in fact. Uh, could provide a framework for a lot of the the divides that we see uh, in crypto. Uh, And so a lot of people like to say a few things about Bitcoin. One, that like the rabbit holes are extremely fractal, where it's like you fall into one rabbit hole and you can spend years just on that rabbit hole. Yeah. Uh, And and then two, it's like they're also extremely interdisciplinary. Understanding Bitcoin like requires understanding a lot of things that are at least piquing your curiosity about a lot of things. So I think that like there are more things than not that could relate to Bitcoin than what than most people realize that there's obviously the danger of like kind of force fitting everything into, oh, uh, Bitcoin fixes this or, oh, that this relates to Bitcoin or but at the same time, there are so many things from, you know, the way that, you know, humans, like just human psychology to things like public policy to things like uh, kind of the economic policy to, you know, how the world works. Like Bitcoin opens up so much for just learning about how the world works, as cliche as that sounds, to, to then, you know, get, get the opportunity to, to explore things beyond Bitcoin but that then ultimately comes back to Bitcoin in some capacity. Yeah, you can look at it from the technological aspect, the sort of like security aspect, which is like, I guess, technological, economic, like so like you're talking about. Historically, I mean, just people do that all the time where they look at different monies. And obviously there's a huge sociological component too. So, I mean, yeah, no, I totally agree with that, honestly it's easy for it to become sort of like a way to think about everything because it, it's, it's a new thing, meaning that it's happened. It's happening right now. So nobody can really predict what it's right. going to be, what it is. Um, and that sort of gives everybody a at zero advantage. There's no sort of like expert, you know, like, like health insurance sales is like a completely different matter. There are people who just have like relationships and stuff like that that completely separates them apart. Um, and then there's also the aspect that it's just completely turning the concept of money on its head. So definitely real quick. I just wanted to do a section. I sometimes do on the show. I call it a uh, underhyped or overhyped. So I'm just going to name something and it's like rapid fire. And you just tell me whether or not it's underhyped in your mind or overhyped. And then you just explain why if it's too <laughs> bad or you don't want to answer, you just don't answer. Okay. So underhyped or overhyped. Knowing who the real Satoshi is. Knowing who the real Satoshi is. Definitely overhyped. I, I, I don't want to know who the real Satoshi is. <laughs> it would, I, I think it would kill him in a lot yeah. of people's minds. You yeah. know, Jack Dorsey's influence on Bitcoin. Uh, underhyped. Do not underestimate what he's doing. A college degree. Overhyped. Yeah. What, what did you study in college? I studied uh, systems engineering and finance. 
Um, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, but that, that I, I think that like it, it, it looks looks good, right? But I, I, I will say that the, these last two years that I've been at ARC, uh, I've learned so much more than, you know, the four years I was, uh, I was in college by orders of magnitude. So overhyped. <laughs> what about a college degree is like a sociological experience? I think the college experience yeah. is, 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 is certainly important. I think that like it's a very interesting phase in your life where, you know, you're mature enough to have an understanding of, of who you are and trying to figure yourself out. But then at the same time, you don't, you have zero responsibility, but to right. learn. So this is not to certainly not to say I, I don't recommend college. I think that the, just the concept of a college degree where you need like a stamp of approval to, to get in the door is so misguided. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, if you're going to have to take hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, of, of loans just so that you can get that stamp of approval in this day and age, especially with social media and, and the ability to kind of e easily produce things that people can see. Um, there, are, there are ways to be a, as successful without a, a college degree. I, I agree with that too. It's, there are cheaper ways to have the sociological yeah. experience too. You like yeah. do a commune or something. Yeah. <laughs> underhyped or overhyped? Morocco. Morocco is uh, definitely underhyped and I might have a little bit of bias because I'm from there. I try to bring, you know, every year a few of my friends, we've gone, we, go, we go road tripping. Very funnily enough, going back to Twitter, Last last year, uh, it was with two of uh, two buddies that I met on Twitter. One's in uh, crypto, another is actually kind of a self-made uh, writer, and and we just went on a, a trio road trip. And uh, you can ask them if it's overhyped or underhyped. Travel with the car, uh, they're like trains. I mean, the cities are 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 not very far from each other. You know, uh -huh. maybe like a two or three hour drive, and. Uh, you can see kind of four or five different cities that provide a, a good, unique experience and uh, in a beginner's level uh, introduction into Africa. All right. COVID-19. Ooh, I, I, I had a feeling that this was going to be asked. So this this might trigger a few Bitcoiners who said that we're going to die, everyone. But I think I think it is over. I think the number of cases have been underreported. Mm -hmm. And as a function of that, the mortality rate has been slightly skewed um, upwards. However, I do think that the consequences of the fear mongering can potentially have graver implications than coronavirus itself. Okay, you see, that's it. And where can people uh, go to find out more about ARC and to follow you? Sure, you can go to arc-invest.com. You can subscribe to a weekly newsletter that we put out and you can follow me on, on Twitter at Yassine Arc. And I'm actually subscribed to that newsletter. But anyway, man, uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk. Thank you, man. Thanks for inviting me. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine, and you can find out about other engaging shows we produce by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.